Well, friends, in Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter stands amidst thousands of Jewish people, and he does so against the backdrop of a Savior who has died, been gloriously raised from the dead, ascended into heaven and enthroned at the right hand of God, and from that place has sent forth his Holy Spirit in a momentous outpouring. And it is in the power of that Spirit that Peter preaches to that large crowd on that day. And among his powerful words are those in Acts 2, 22 to 24. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the godless, by godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. With what amazing authority, with what amazing power, Peter speaks those words. What clarity, what certainty, what correctness in those words. But dear friends, I remind you that those words were spoken after the great redemptive acts had been accomplished. These words were spoken by Peter after the cross, after the resurrection, after the ascension, and after the Holy Spirit had sent, uh, after Christ had sent the Holy Spirit to illuminate Peter's mind, to interpret those redemptive events, and to fill his soul with spiritual power. That was after the cross. How different was Peter's understanding on the other side of the cross? And in our study of Mark's gospel, that's where we are, on the other side of the cross. Jesus has not died. He has not been raised. He has not ascended yet. But the time of that hour is getting closer. Less than a year remains before that appointment is met. And Jesus is constrained to accelerate the training of his immediate band of disciples, the apostles, the twelve, They must be prepared for the tumultuous events that are on the horizon. So come back with me, please, to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 in your Bibles. We saw last week how Jesus wisely leads his disciples, Peter in particular, to make the declaration we call the Great Confession. Remember how he pulls them away from the crowds? Which crowds include many who were awed by his miracles, but not convinced of his message? Crowds that contained lurking enemies, the Pharisees, who were always looking to trap Jesus in his words, hostile spies. He leads them away from those crowds. He leads them into the villages of Caesarea Philippi, a largely Gentile district that would be free largely from Messiah mania, we might say. And it is with their backs to those milling crowds and all the emotional pressure, it is in the relative solitude of being alone as a band of 12 that Jesus poses the first question to them to test their understanding. He says, who do men say that I am? Who do people say that I am? He doesn't ask for information's sake. He doesn't ask because he wants to know in order to please the masses. He asks for their sake that they might know what the popular opinion is because he knows that they're going to come to a different conclusion and they're going to have to stand against the popular opinion 
And so he says, who do men, who do people say that I am? And they answer, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're one of the prophets. He doesn't draw them out further because that's not what he's really after. That was a lead-in question to the more important question, which follows. But who do you say that I am? And of course, it is the ever-outspoken Peter who answers for the group. And he answers, well, you are the Christ. And Jesus affirms that by saying rather mysteriously in verse 30, warning them not to tell anybody about him. But he affirms what Peter said, you are the Christ. Why do we call this the great confession? Because, friends, it is the truth on which the church is built. To say Jesus is the Christ, the Greek word Christos, is to say he is the anointed one. That is, he embodies in his person the three offices that were anointed in the Old Testament, the priest, the prophet, and the king. To call Jesus the Christ is to say he is the anointed priest who offered up not another sacrifice, but offered up himself as a sacrifice for sins that the guilt of our sin might be removed. He is the anointed prophet who brings to us the final revelation of God's word in truth. And he is the anointed king who has come to rule over his people in place of sin ruling them, in place of Satan ruling them. Jesus has come to rule over his people in this life and really into all eternity. And according to Matthew's version, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter was recognizing that Jesus is co-equal with God and claiming deity. This confession is the central truth on which the New Covenant Church is founded. A church that affirms that Jesus is the Christ in this full orb sense is a true church. This also determines what a believer is. A true believer is one who has said, Jesus is Christ to me. That is, his priestly sacrifice has paid for my sins. Jesus is my prophet. I esteem his words as truth, and I cling to them, and I show my love for him by obeying them. And Jesus is my Christ in that he is my king. I gladly take him as the ruler of my life. So affirming that confession determines what a Christian is. So Peter, in saying you are the Christ, gets it right, gloriously right, and um, probably the other disciples with him. In distinction from the rest of the people, they understood more. The crowds esteemed Jesus as a man, a good man, maybe like John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets, but only a man, only a preparatory person. But Peter, representing the other apostles, see him as more than a man, not a mere man, not a preparatory person, but the Christ who would come to fulfill those Old Testament promises and bring in the kingdom of God. But then Jesus gave a curious prohibition in verse 30. After Peter makes this great confession, you are the Christ, it says he warned them not to tell, to tell no one about him. Why the prohibition? Well, as we'll see in a few minutes, Although Peter and the rest understood that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, they had many defective ideas about the Christ, as we'll see in a few minutes. And therefore, it was not the time for them to be unleashed to broadcast the message that Jesus is the Christ. They got that far, but they had much to learn as to what kind of a Messiah he was. But having secured that correct statement, you are the Christ, 
Jesus is now free to build upon that foundation. And so he begins to unfold the nature of Jesus' Messiahship in what follows. And so what we have in our text this morning, verses 31 to 34, what I'm calling the first major lesson on the cross. Verse 31 and following. And he, after Peter makes the confession, you are the Christ, he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests or God's things, but man's. I want us to see three things. The plain prediction of Messiah's sufferings made by Jesus, the ignorant rejection of Messiah's sufferings by Peter, and then the severe correction that Jesus gives concerning the necessity of Messiah's sufferings. So first, the plain prediction by Jesus of Messiah's sufferings. And the first thing I want us to see is is the kind and wise manner in which Jesus makes this prediction. Verse 32, he was stating the matter plainly. Plainly in in the Greek is the word parousia. It means openly, frankly. And there's a noteworthy shift from before. Whenever Jesus, prior to this time, had made reference to his his upcoming death, it was always in a a rather veiled and, and cloaked and oblique manner. For example, in John 2, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He's talking about his body, but he's doing it in a veiled way. Temple? In John 3.14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. How will the Son of Man be lifted up? Of course, it's a reference to the cross, but it's very veiled. In Matthew 9.15, but the time will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Taken away? How? In John 6.62, what then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? What? It's a reference to his death, his, his ascension, but it's veiled, it's oblique, it's cloaked. That was fine for former days, but now the storm clouds are gathering. The signs of the times are growing ominous, and vague allusions to his death will no longer do. They're now beginning to enter the valley of the shadow of death, and Jesus needs to begin to tell his disciples more plainly about his upcoming death. Because, you see, they were in it with him together. Granted, he alone would suffer, but their fate was bound up with his. And so Jesus needs to be more plain with them about what's going to happen to him. To do otherwise would be an unspoken lie. It was the time for the truth about his upcoming suffering to explode the wrong ideas that they had about Messiah. And Jesus seemed to know that only blunt candor stood a chance of penetrating the fog, the thick fog of their ignorance. And so truthfulness constrains Jesus to begin now to speak plainly about his upcoming suffering and and death. But I noted that as always, Jesus' words were very wise and very kind. Proverbs 3.3 tells us, do not let kindness and truth leave you. 
bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. Kindness and truth. Jesus always had these in beautiful balance. So he's speaking the truth here very plainly, more plainly than before. And yet I want you to know the the kindness of the Lord. If you compare what he says here, when he says that he's going to suffer many things and be killed, and then you compare that to what he later says in chapter 10, 33 and 34, the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. You see, he's not giving all that detail right now. He's breaking them in easy. Later, he's going to be even more explicit about his sufferings. But right now, he's a little more general. Why? In kindness. You know, Jesus said in John 16, 12, I have many things to say to you, but you are not able to bear them now. Jesus always knew what his disciples could bear. He never gave them more than they could bear. And so not only did he speak truth, but he spoke with kindness. And he measured what he said. He restrained what he said at this point. Later, he would be more explicit. And in passing, I think there's a lesson for us that kindness and truth should not leave us either. Do you speak the truth? I hope so. But I hope you speak it with kindness. Jesus spoke the truth, but always in love. We need to be people of truth. We also need to be people of kindness. Jesus was full of grace and truth. And in him, there was a perfect balance. We can be unbalanced. We can either, in the interest of kindness and niceness, not speak the truth, or in the interest of truth, be so blunt, we're not kind. And so let's be like Jesus, ever growing. Do not let kindness or truth leave you. So the manner in which he makes that prediction, but then the shocking message of suffering contained in the prediction. What was he predicting? Verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise. First, we see the necessity of the suffering. It says the Son of Man must suffer many things. And that little word must, a little three-letter Greek word, dei, it's a particle of necessity. It's the word used in 1 Timothy 3 when Paul says an overseer must be these things. They're not optional. He must be these things. It's the word used in John 4. Jesus must pass through Samaria. He had an appointment with a a Samaritan woman, and he must pass through. It's a particle of necessity. And Jesus is saying here that the Son of Man must suffer these things. And we ask why. Why did Jesus have to suffer these things? Well, first of all, because it was the will of the Father. And Jesus was always bent on doing his Father's will. And what was the will of the Father? I cited it earlier. He who did not spare his own Son, but delivered him up for us all. It was the will of the Father that the the Son come and be delivered up on the cross. Not only that, it was Jesus' own promise to suffer and die. In Hebrews chapter 10, 7 to 8, citing Psalm 40, These are the words of the Messiah himself. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying 
above sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then verse 10 says, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus committed in eternity past to take on a body and in that body to suffer and die for the sins of his people. So he had to suffer because he himself had promised it. Further, the prophecies about the Messiah must be fulfilled. And there were prophecies that were missed by his contemporaries, that he would be a suffering servant. Isaiah 53, he will be crushed for our iniquities. He will bear our sins. And those prophecies had to be fulfilled. And most basically, the plan of God's salvation necessitated that Jesus would die on a cross. God is a just God. He must punish sin. But in order to be merciful to the sinner, God's way of salvation, I'll elaborate on it a little later, is substitution. Another dying for the sin of the guilty one. And so 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The salvation of a people demanded that Jesus die a substitutionary death. And so he says it is necessary for the Son of Man to suffer. So we see the necessity of the suffering. We see the perpetrators of the suffering. He says he tells his disciples who it is that's going to inflict the suffering. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. The entire religious leadership of the Jews was responsible for the death of Jesus. And the apostles needed to know that. Because after Jesus goes back to heaven, they are going to face the enmity and the hostility of the entire Jewish system. And so he needed to know that it was the entire leadership of the Jews that were responsible for putting him to death. They are the perpetrators of the suffering. And then the nature of the suffering, he says, has to suffer many things. Like I said, he spares them the details, but he does say, and he must be killed. The apostles need to know that the enemies facing Jesus and the enemies that they will face when Jesus has gone to heaven are mortal enemies. They're going to kill me and they're going to be out to kill you. But then... Regarding the prediction, there's also the hint of victory. He not only says the Son of Man needs to suffer many things and be killed, but then he says, after three days, rise again. This was not bad news. This was good news. Of course, it was lost on the apostles at that point, right? They were so overwhelmed, Peter was, with the thought of his suffering, that they totally missed the hope of the resurrection. They'll get it later, but not yet. So we have the prediction of Messiah's sufferings. Now, the ignorant rejection of Messiah's sufferings by Peter. And Jesus was stating the matter plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus is saying, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be killed. And Peter began to rebuke him. Peter, as the spokesman representing the whole group, begins to rebuke him. And that word rebuke is a strong word. It means to censure severely. It's used of Jesus rebuking an unclean spirit. It's used of the penitent thief on the cross, rebuking the other thief and saying, do you not even fear God? It's a strong word with which Peter rebuked his master. 
What was the reason for that rebuke? The reason that Peter was rejecting the thought that Jesus was going to suffer and die? Well, I think it has to do with the fact that Peter shared the common idea of what the Messiah was to be. He was to be a conquering king. He was to be a, a political Messiah to overthrow the Romans and free the Jewish people politically. And the thought of Jesus suffering and dying as a victim was totally incompatible with the popular notion of the Messiah, which was no doubt held by the apostles themselves. And besides that, what was his motive for the rejection? Not only did he have wrong ideas about the Messiah, but no doubt there was an element of Peter's own affection for Jesus, his attachment to Jesus, his love for Jesus. He loved Jesus. I can't imagine you suffering and, and being killed and, and knowing the holiness and goodness of Jesus, how unjust, how undeserved that would be. And so I think there was part of it was Peter's own sentimental attachment to Jesus. He couldn't envision Jesus suffering those things. But the obvious error in the rejection as well-intentioned as Peter might have been, and he did speak with good intentions, he was wrong. He was wrong. Though the words of Jesus crossed his cherished beliefs, he was wrong, even arrogant, to challenge Jesus in this. Jesus was saying, yay, and Peter was saying, nay. And that was not only wrong, it was arrogant and self, arrogance and self-conceit on Peter's part. And so we have the prediction by Jesus of the suffering. Then we have the rejection, unwittingly by Peter, of that suffering. And then we see the severe correction Jesus gives in this regard concerning the necessity of Messiah's sufferings. In verse 33, after being rebuked by Peter, Jesus, turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's things, but man's. He might have known that Peter was well-intentioned in his rejection of Jesus' words, but um, Jesus needed to give a correction. And it's noteworthy that it says, seeing the disciples. He gets rebuked by Peter. He turns and looks at the disciples. Why did he do that? probably knowing that they shared the same idea as Peter. And so the correction was not only for Peter, it was going to be for all of them. All of you guys have a wrong idea about what Messiah is going to do. And I, I don't, not only want to correct Peter, but I need to correct all of you in this. And notice the strong rebuke in the correction. We've seen that Jesus is kind and he's gentle. His words are always timely and appropriate. Jesus is always tactful. But here, where saving truth is at stake, Jesus is unsparing. Jesus knew that Peter was well-intentioned, but the error spoken of was so contrary to the will of God, it could not stand without a severe rebuke. And so the same word used to describe Peter's rebuke of Jesus is used of Jesus' rebuke of Peter. Peter rebukes Jesus, and Jesus comes with a counter-rebuke to correct Peter's rebuke. Jesus would not sacrifice truth on the altar of sentimentality. You see, this matter was not some peripheral matter. 
Jesus is saying, I'm going to die. And Peter says, no, Lord, this was no peripheral matter. It had to do with the central purpose of his coming. It had to do with the very heart of his messianic mission, the very heart of the gospel. In the councils of eternity, the triune God had planned the redemption of a people, and it was through the bloodshedding and death of the Son of God. The prophets had breathed into them with progressive clarity words that predicted that the Son of Man was going to suffer and die a substitutionary death. And from the beginning of his own self-consciousness, as one who was fully human, Jesus had been consumed with this desire to do the Father's will, and he knew that the Father's will for him would culminate in that hour in which he would die upon a cross. And so for Peter to contradict that, he was contradicting the eternal counsels of the Trinity. He was contradicting the will of the Father. He was contradicting the resolve of the Son. And unwittingly, he was denying the only means that God had appointed for the salvation of sinners. But Jesus knew Peter's error, and he counters with this strong rebuke. So what might we learn just in passing here? Again, Peter was well-intentioned, right? He loved his, his master. Lord, I don't want to see this happen to you. I can't imagine you suffering and dying. You're such a just, righteous man. This would be undeserved. It would be unjust. And Peter had well, was well-intentioned. But Jesus did not sacrifice truth on the altar of sentimentality, and neither must we. He wasn't concerned at that point about hurting Peter's feelings because the very truth of the gospel was at stake and Jesus needed to uphold it. Don't we see that with the Apostle Paul? I cited Galatians, his most passionate, vehement letter. Why? Because the gospel is at issue. And right out of the starting blocks in chapter 1, Paul says in Galatians 1.89, Though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel, let him be accursed. As I said before, I say again, if anyone preaches another gospel, let him be accursed. He's not sparing because the truth of the gospel is at issue. In chapter 2, he says, we did not yield. That is, we didn't agree to circumcise Titus and, and fall prey to this false gospel. We did not yield to them for even an hour that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. And so we, too, must never sacrifice truth on the altar of sentimentality. We have loved ones who are not trusting in Jesus, but they're trusting in something else that will never get them to heaven. Kindly and in appropriate ways and times, we need to tell them the truth about the gospel. Now, the gospel offends, doesn't it? People don't like to be told that they're guilty sinners and they're on their way to hell. But don't ever yield to sentimentality and say, well, I don't want to hurt their feelings. We need to give them the truth of the gospel. You may need know someone, a Christian who's professing Christ and they're living an immoral life. Don't be concerned so much about their feelings as be concerned for their soul and speak them the truth and say fornicators will not er- inherit the kingdom of, of God. And so like Jesus, so sensitive so considerate, so compassionate, and yet when the truth of the gospel was at stake, he thunders back, get behind me, Satan. And then note the evil purpose of Satan that is exposed in this correction. He says, get behind me, Satan, 
for you are not setting your mind on God's things, but man's. Now, he addresses Peter. It says in the text that um, he rebuked Peter, but in doing so, he addresses Satan. How so? Well, because it was Satan who was behind the words of Peter, Satan who had put those thoughts in Peter's mind. A few moments earlier, he had spoken words that were inspired from heaven. You are the Christ. And now he's speaking words that come from the very pit of hell. No, Lord, this must not happen to you. And what was the evil purpose in view in these words? What was Satan intending? Jesus says, you're setting, not setting your mind on God's things, but man's. Satan's evil purpose was to appeal to man's things and not God's. It was to try to get Jesus to go contrary to the will of God, the will of his Father, and to appeal to self-interest in Jesus. Satan is God's bitter enemy. He's filled with pride and envy. He hates God. He's opposed to the things of God. And he is totally ruled by self-interest, and he supposes that others are ruled by self-interest as well. He tempts us in that direction. That's how he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus is hungry. Here, Jesus, look at this nice warm bread to satisfy your appetite, self-interest over the interest in things of God. Jesus, throw yourself off the temple and make a big splash and and be glorified. Self-interest versus the interest of God. Jesus, bow down and worship me. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth, appealing to suppose vain glory in Jesus. Self-interest versus the interest of God. And so he appeals to Jesus' self-interest. Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. How crushing that would be to your beloved disciples. You see how, how downcast they are, how it offends their sensibilities. How could you do this to your friends? How could you leave them behind? Jesus bypassed the cross. And so Peter becomes the unwitting tool of Satan to try to present Jesus from going to the cross, which certainly was a a, a sore temptation to Jesus, parallel to the temptations in the wilderness. They were real temptations. He's a real man, and he's really tempted, though without sin. What a victory it would have been for Satan had Peter's rebuke landed on on good soil in Jesus, and Jesus decided not to go to the cross. What a victory in hell. What glory would God be robbed of, and there would be no eternal salvation. But then we see, in this final point in my exposition, the resolved obedience of our Lord expressed by this correction. Jesus absorbs the rebuke from the apostle. He pivots. He sees the other men. He says, they're probably believing the same thing that Jesus is going to be this glorious, conquering king. And um, what does he do? Without hesitation, without wavering, with speed and finality, he utterly rejects the thought of not going to the cross, and he says, get behind me, Satan. This is not from God. This is not from my Father for me to avoid the suffering and the death. And here we see the resolved obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan could appeal to self-interest and find fertile soil in a lot of people's hearts, but he found no fertile soil in the heart of Jesus. 
Jesus will not spare himself. Jesus will please the Father. He will carry out the Father's will to the very end. It was the Father's will that he be born as a baby, and he submitted to that will. It was his Father's will that he live a life of perfect obedience to the Father's law, and he carried that out to the letter. It was his Father's will that he submit to the sinner's ordinance, baptism, and he did that. And he would be obedient to the Father's will right to the end, even to death on a cross. And I close that part with John 12, 27, 28, another gospel, getting near the end. And Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. In his humanity, he contemplated being spared the agony of the cross, didn't he? Didn't he do that in the garden? Lord, if it's possible, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. In his humanity, in his fear, in his human fear and weakness. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Ah, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Even as in the garden, he resolved it by saying, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And here, a temptation to avoid the cross from Peter, from Satan, through Peter. Get behind me, Satan. I'll have none of it. It's not in accord with my Father's will. I will meet that appointment with the cross. And so... With that understanding, with that exposition, what do we do by way of application? Well, my hermeneutical training tells me, and I pass this on to you, look for the main application, okay? There are multiple applications, I'll make a few, but you should always look for the main application of the text, and I think there is one. What do we majorly take away from this passage? It is the centrality and necessity of the cross of Christ. The strength of Jesus' rebuke highlights the extreme danger of the error he was refuting, and it highlights the vital importance of the truth he was defending. The thought of Jesus bypassing his sufferings, which he would later detail, was utterly from the pit of hell. Why? Because it undermined the whole purpose in his coming. It overthrew the plan of God that was fashioned in eternity, the plan of God to redeem his people. Hebrews 9.22 tells us what has been at the heart of God's salvation plan from the beginning when it says, without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And that's a reference to Leviticus 17.11, where the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Why? It goes all the way back to Genesis. When God gave man free reign in the garden to eat from any tree and enjoy them, but there was one tree that was prohibited, and he said, the day you eat of the fruit of that tree, you shall surely die. We ate in Adam. Adam and Eve, they ate. And death was the judgment. Death is the punishment for sin. But if God is going to redeem a people, how is he going to uphold his justice? He must punish sin with death because that's what he promised. But how can he be just and uphold that promise of his justice 
and forgive guilty sinners. How can God be just and justify the unrighteous? That's the great question. And we know how God resolved it. It was by the principle of substitution. Sin will be punished by death, but God will spare the sinner that death by punishing a substitute. That was his way of salvation from the beginning, from the, from the animal that had to die in order to clothe Adam and Eve in the garden with animal skins and not fig leaves, through the elaborate and voluminous sacrifices that were commanded of the Israelites under Moses and the Old Covenant, to the one effectual sacrifice made by Jesus, this has been God's only way of salvation, death of a substitute. Now, God couldn't punish an angel for man's sins. That would be unjust, right? You could see the angel saying, why, why us? We haven't done wrong. He couldn't punish an angel for man's sins or mankind's sins, but he could choose to bear the punishment himself, right? The offended one could choose to take it upon himself. And so God, the son agreed to come and suffer and die as a substitute for sinners so that God can be just in punishing sin, but justify the ungodly by punishing our sin, not in us, but in our substitute, Jesus. That has always been God's way of salvation. And that's why Jesus had to suffer and die. And what is the main takeaway from that for unbelievers? Well, if you sit here and you have never put your trust fully in Jesus Christ, the message of this passage is the only way you can ever be forgiven, the only way you can be brought into right relationship to God, you, the only way you will ever go to that blissful place, heaven, where God is, is the way of trusting Jesus' death upon the cross. If you are trusting anything else to get you right with God into heaven, it is from Satan, it is from hell. God's way of salvation is by the way of substitution. Jesus, his son, died in the place of sinners. And if you will put your trust in Jesus alone in his death, God will punish your sin in Jesus. You will be immediately forgiven of your sin, of all of your sin, and you will be destined for eternal life with God. And then for those of us who are believers, I think we should be filled afresh with gratitude for our Savior who withstood every temptation to lure him away from the unspeakable agony and anguish of the cross. He said no to Satan every time. He said no to Satan in the wilderness. He said no to Satan here. He said yes to his father. I will go. I will die in order that we might have a place prepared for us where he is a place of unimaginable joy and peace and purpose and praise to the glory of God and to the Lamb. That's the main takeaway, the centrality and necessity of the cross of Jesus Christ. But there are other applications, and I'll make three others briefly. I think we learn from this passage the fickleness of our human hearts. Don't we see Peter in one moment gloriously confessing you're the Christ. And in Matthew, Jesus says, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but you're my father who is in heaven. Inspired by heaven, Peter says, you're the Christ. And then a few minutes later, 
inspired by Satan, he says, oh, no, Lord, you can't possibly go to the cross. And in Peter, we should see ourselves, how fickle are our hearts, how much we need to not lean on our own understanding, how much we need to rely upon the word of God to make sure our thoughts, our words, our worldview are rooted in his revelation, that we're not thinking man's things and not God's things. We need to think God's things and we need to be in the word of God because of the fickleness of our human hearts. Another application, we need to be reminded of the reality of the person of Satan. Satan and and his demons are real and they are really operative in the world today. And his modus operandi has always been to put thoughts in our minds that are contrary to the word and will of God. We're told in 1 Corinthians 2.11, we are not ignorant of his wiles. And that word wiles or devices is the Greek noemata, and it literally means his thoughts, his purposes. We're not ignorant of, of the thoughts and purposes he tries to instill in our minds. We must not be ignorant of those. And then we're told elsewhere we need to resist him, firm in our faith, And how do we resist him? How did Jesus resist him? It is written. It is written. It is written. God's thoughts to resist the thoughts that Satan would put in our minds. And God's thoughts are found in God's word. And then recognize that one of Satan's chief devices is to appeal to our self-interest. His influence on Peter was to get him to think on man's things and not God's. To get Jesus to think on man's things and not the things of his father. And if you and I want to detect the voice of the enemy when it comes, a good question to ask ourselves is, where is my interest focused on myself? Self-love rather than the love of others. Self-esteem rather than esteeming others. Self-pity, feeling sorry for myself, rather than showing compassion for others. Self-advancement, rather than the interests of others. Self-indication, rather than the vindication of truth. Self-glory and praise, rather than the glory of God. Wherever you hear the voice of self-interest, beware. It's probably the voice of the devil. And look away from that, to how can I love God and how can I love others? See, life becomes rather simple. Life is a matter of loving ourselves less, loving God and our neighbor more. That's the entirety of the law. That's the entirely entirety of the Christian.